0: Mamano karapa te Many hands make light work. Inga iwiotemutsu iwi o te motu no mai anō ki te hōtaka nei te Ko au ko Justin Murray. Ko marae a and this is Te Ahikā on Radio New Zealand National. Hea hana Pape e faiake ake nei. What's coming up, Justine? Well, as you've heard whānaumā in previous shows, we've featured coverage of the 2011 Ngā Tāungatui Ā We started with the rangatahi and now we're on to kaumātua doing their thing in their communities.
1: As she used to sit on the back porch with a friend who came round on Wednesday. And when I came home from school, they'd shut up. They'd say, oh, and they'd say, oh, did you have a nice day at school, dear? You know, because I used to t- creep around the side of the house, and I'd creep around, and I'd hear them, and I'd stay there for a while, and uh, that was because, of course, she was brought up in that period where uh, Maori students were smacked or hit round the legs if they they weren't allowed to speak Te reo. Ta Kingi Ihaka
2: recipient,
1: artist, Marilyn Webb, explaining
2: why her mum only spoke Māori on Wednesdays. She rejoins us with Justine
0: in a sec. While more is known about intellectual property and its impact upon the rights of Indigenous people today, 20 years ago it was still a relatively new consideration.
2: Yet, even so, six individuals recognised its future significance and the need to protect Indigenous rights to traditional knowledge when
0: they lodged a claim with the Waitangi Tribunal. One of the claimants was Sana Murray, who will feature in Tiahika today, from an archival recording in 1988, which shows how these issues were at the forefront of her mind.
3: Elders had, at the hapua had wished to share with the children the future children that will possibly gain knowledge and better their standards of living from knowing the past.
0: Sana Murray, talking at the Ethnobotany Ngā Mahi Māori o Te Waunui a hui, held at Terehua Marai Christchurch in 1988. And also
2: today, just Justine's with the Māori version of Bruno Mars, Seth Harpu, who instantites broadcast with an acoustic version of Keeping Count from his self-titled album. Ngā mā, That's
0: the lineup this hour on Te Ahikā.
2: So far, you've heard from Karangawai Marsh and Tai They are this year's recipients of scholarships from Te the Māori Board of Creative New Zealand, the organisation
0: that funds various artistic endeavours. So, from those starting out to those who have been around a while, the purpose of the Pakingi Ihaka Awards is to acknowledge the work of pakeke, or kaumātua, who have stayed within their communities and kept those artistic home fires burning. This week, it's the turn of an artist who,
2: although based in the South Island, fondly remembers her time growing up in an Eastern of Plenty
1: township.
0: Although your, your iwi is Ngāpuhi, you weren't necessarily um, raised raised in Ngāpuhi. No, I
1: wasn't. My mother um, had relocated with her family to Onehanga in Auckland and she was raised by a nanny there. And um, I was born in Auckland but then taken to Apotiki where my father's family were when she married. So I was actually raised in, uh, as an Apotiki kid.
0: What was it like growing up in a oh, port it was
1: wonderful. It's sort mean, of been in the 1950s? Oh, 40s. 40s? And um, can you imagine two rivers on either side of you and the beach in front? It was bliss for a child. And a small, loving community. It was wonderful.
0: Mm. So being Ngāpuhi and not necessarily being, being raised in the Hokianga meant that you weren't around no, your, your no, language? Or... No,
1: I wasn't. And I didn't realise that, of course, until... Um, I'd gone through my training and had got my first job in the education department in Auckland and I was working as an art advisor to schools in Northland and Auckland and I was given the hokianga as my... Your um, assignment. Yes, as my schools country schoolers to look at and of course then things started to uncover themselves for me. So would so you have wonderful. been in your 20s then, Marilyn? Yes. Yes, yeah. I was.
0: So, growing up in a Portskie with your father. Yeah, fa- your father's fa- Parkhill. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah they though of a good, you know, usual early Celtic mix, Welsh, Irish, you name it, all that stuff. Yes, and um, I was. We were raised um, as a Portskie kids. I mean, I went to all the local primary schools and the high school, then. I went to school with Hari Williams, and uh, just to name a couple of people, I'm just thinking of broadcasting. Yeah, yeah,
0: here. Hari Williams did. And uh, Hari and world. I think we
1: were in the same class. I think he was a bus monitor or something. That's <laughs> bus
2: monitor. <laughs> bus monitor, yeah.
1: <laughs> So, uh, no, I had a wonderful, blissful childhood. And um, then as you become an adolescent in a small town, you want to get out of it. So uh, the uh, girls then, this was in the 50s, girls then either went nursing or teaching, and I went teaching. So I went to Ardmore Training College because it was a live-in institution. Yes. And that's where the country kids went, and that's, they um, uh, got kids to go to the institution from the countries. I used to send buses around. I think I went across to Whakadani and um, signed up then. But to me, that was better than going and working in a local shop or uh, Or. going. I mean, then university education was scarce. Mm. It was scarce. You would have to go to Auckland or Wellington. And although I went right through school and through the sixth form, um, there was a great mission for kids to get out and earn their own money, you know. So that's, I went teaching. And from there, things really opened up for me. In what way? Well, I'd always been very interested in art, although I was in the sort of an academic kid at school and good at, you know, everything else.
0: So you trained as an arts teacher? Uh, um, Well, I was
1: picked up. uh, During the 50s and the 40s, there was a scheme called the Tovey Scheme. Tovey. And it was um, instigated by Dr. Beebe, quite a bit of money being fed into education. And, of course, the great reforms in the late 30s of Peter Fraser, who was then the Prime Minister, who wanted a better education for New Zealand children. He wanted New Zealand children to have more opportunities and more creative opportunities. So there were things like physical education, and this was after the Second World War, where they wanted better things for children, a better life. for, And they also valued, started to value ethnicity. So... My mother's era was almost over, like being smacked for uh, speaking terreo in the in the playground. So that era was disappearing and I was very privileged to be born when I was because I came in on the change right Now um they trained specialist advisors uh, they trained advisors in um, science. Advisors and FizEd was the first advisory um, set up in Wellington, and then they trained in art and craft. And Art and craft then encompassed Māori as well as all the Eurocentric at, um, attitudes to art and craft. So there was, and I came in on the rebirthing of Māori art and craft into this, the school system which was wonderful so then um, we had um, we trained then uh, there was a guy called Gordon Tovey, he was very charismatic and uh, he hooked up with Pine Taiapa from the with, uh, the east coast and he, he used as a mentor Mm-hmm. And he trained. He used to go around training colleges and pick people. Now, I w- had, was very fortunate to have gone to Ardmore because the art department was open 48 hours of a day. It was a living institution. Yeah. And any kids that were good at art could go up and use all the equipment. The guy that ran it was an ex-Second World War pilot from Britain called Phil Barclay and his claim to fame is that he once spent a week with Picasso in Paris gosh you know we all went oh heavens oh gosh (laughs) but he was all but his other his major claim to fame that he was um, interested in students and he had got through as a tail gunner in the second world war and he was still alive and he was so interested in all creative new things, photography, printmaking. He just loved everything. And, of course, if he'd been friendly with Picasso, Picasso was a real, um, you know, he used to pick up this and that and he acquired everything and used every sort of thing. He wasn't just a a linear type of artist. So uh, I was very fortunate there. Then Gordon Tovey came round and I got picked to be a third year. So the third year's then trained in Dunedin, which, of course, I didn't realise then because I was a country kid <laughs> from the Eastern Bay of Plenty and gone to Papakura and I'd really only known Auckland. But then I didn't realise that, of course... Uh, Dunedin, was a centre for um, educational research. So we came down here for a year, and in my group was Paramachet, Cliff Whiting, Graham Storm, the ceramic artist, Ray Erickson, who made a huge name for himself, uh, teaching with children with alternative learning problems, and um, a couple of other women. So uh, we had a year down here where we um, we explored the Dunedin student life. <laughs> you were been in your 20s just, back I, then? I was, yes, I would. I think I turned 21 oh, in Dunedin. In Dunedin. Or perhaps I was only 20, I can't remember. But it was fun. And, you know, we'd never seen snow. Oh, although I'd seen snow because we used to go. Uh, to Gisborne from Oportakee through the gorge and there was always still at Matawai in, oh. in the um, middle of the gorge. But um, it, it was really wonderful and from there I got a, my first job in Auckland and that was 1958. Now, I went to Auckland and there were 14 advisers working in the education department who serviced all the Auckland schools down as far as Meri and then up as far as Te Hapua, wow. plus Auckland Central. And we were given... now. In 1958, I met Ralph Hutley, who'd also trained in the same group, and Bishop uh, Muru Walters is now Bishop Muru Walters, and they were assented uh, in Kaikui. And then Muru moved to Whangarei, so um, it was a, a heady group. Uh, yeah. It was a, a very heady group. I came in on the end of the Northern Māori Project, uh, which was run up north in Northland schools. And there were all sorts of interesting things going on in small two teacher and one teacher schools in Northland. It was becoming a hub of um, educational experiment. And it was wonderful. Now, I couldn't think. I was a young woman. And then uh, might I add and remind the listeners that at that time, and I'm talking about 1958... That was the time when women did the same job as men but earned less. Mm. So there was no equal pay happening then. And, of course, if you were unmarried, you did all the weekend work because the family then, of course, was sacrosanct. So married um, advisors didn't have to go out and do the community work because... The Education Department was also involved in community work. If you were working in the school, they regarded the school as the community, and therefore if you worked in the school on an advisory period, you also worked with the community and let the community in on the educational practices of the new thought area. That was coming through the education department, and if you are listening, Mrs. Stolly, you <laughs> should realise that it's something that is is missing from the current educational policy. Mm. So um, I worked like that off and on, and I'm I was given um, the uh, we travelled with other advisors. We didn't. We weren't solo. We travelled together. We used to go into schools. The headmasters had shut the schools down. We'd work with, a whole ch- with all the children, and we'd worked with the community would come in as well. It was wonderful. We, this was the um, era in New Zealand art where ceramics was a big thing. We built lots of uh, salt-glazed kilns, Um, around Northland. Some of them are still there. I've seen them with (laughs) with Morning Glory growing all over them. They're not used, but, you know, and uh, we uh, mirrored the local contemporary art thing also in the school. So there was a, a continuation of art practice going right through to the community, and it was very rich, and um it was very full and i could as a young woman could never have thought of a better job than that in fact i did several periods of um being away uh, you know overseas we used to go on unpaid leave and the government department would act as a sort of a provider when we got back we'd go on unpaid leave and they'd keep our jobs open that doesn't happen anymore and um, I'd go away and I'd always come back because there was no better work as far as I was concerned, as fulfilling work. And a lot of colleagues are still my close friends, the ones that are still living. Amazing. It was an amazing thing. And of course, it petered out. And I must say this when the national government, a national government got in, and when the dollar, the pound changed to the dollar, and then they didn't keep putting... Uh, they said it was fiscal, which is what they're saying now. Um, and they didn't put any more money into um, projects, and especially in the primary school area. And then, then we got um, the lack of um locally trained new zealand trained teachers coming into our tertiary institutions we were doing started at in the 60s to do cultural over over-seizure. seizures better than local seizure you know which to my mind's never been right
0: yeah marilyn can we talk about um there's some interesting things that you just touched on about um, te reo Mardi yeah. and how it wasn't really a, a, hu- a huge part of your life, but what memories do you remember
1: about your? Well, your I mum? remember my mother only spoke Māori on Wednesday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I always oh, that story. Awful,
1: isn't that awful? But I mean, it's funny to say that. But as she used to sit on the back porch with a friend. who came round on Wednesday, and when I came home from school, they'd shut up. They'd say "Osh," oh, and they'd say, "Oh, did you have a nice day at school, dear?" You know, because so you'd catch I, them, yeah, little I, words I used to, to creep to... around the side of the house, and I'd creep around, and I'd hear them, and I'd stay there for a while, and uh, that was because, of course, she was brought up in that period where, naughty students were smacked, or hit round the legs if they they weren't allowed to speak toreo, they weren't allowed, to, and if they were caught in the playground, that was it. Mm. So, um, but you know there was a huge amount of terre spoken in my secondary school, as you can imagine, and um my mother there were lots of my father had a he although he's European had a scattering of because he had a garage and a port, key, and he had to service all the milking machines up the Motru and down the coast oh and the garages
0: in the um yeah petrol garages, yes. yeah.
1: And he also fixed up, as I said, all the machinery round yeah. the area. So of course he had a smattering. He understood Maori. And um, my, I had his sister spoke Maori fluently because she worked with um, a part Maori Lebanese trader from Apurukie, and uh, they um, used to go down the coast. And before a lot of roads were in, because she was older than my father. Mm. And, she, of course, they had to trade. So there was all that. It's it's in there. But um, we never... They never encouraged. It's like I've got had a student who was uh, half New Zealand Samoan, born in New Zealand, and she wasn't encouraged to speak Samoan where she was brought up. So... Um, yes, so I was born in that phase. It's very uh, kids are very lucky now, mm. very lucky now to have re, to have both to have be able to move in language like that, mm. and then of course I knew Katerina Mataira, who was wonderful.
0: Wasn't she an amazing uh, amazing?
1: Woman? Yes, and of course she was very influential in in. Uh, Replacing Terreo back into the system.
0: And she was an amazing artist, yes, I mean, writing yes, artist yes. as well. Your work is described as highly distinctive printmaking.
1: Yes. I started off in print. Well, I was painting. Oh, well, I did painting. I was more interested in the graphic arts than making things. So um, I, be- I sort of got side-rolled into printmaking. <laughs> side-rolled? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I used to, when I worked up north, sometimes I was away from my um, Auckland base for three weeks out of a month. Where would you stay? Well, we stayed in hotels and I stayed with teachers who stayed all over the place. It was like being a gypsy, a travelling art (laughs) gypsy, you know. And uh, a lot of my work I used to draw a lot out of the car window. And uh, I'd draw landscape and I'd draw... I was always very interested in land issue and I always have been and I always will be and I would draw special places or places that I felt uh, gave me something or places that spooked me. And um, rather than doing... sitting up an easel and doing landscape, you know, but I, I had books full of drawings. And at work... I was in, uh, was asked to help um, develop the school curriculums in drawing, uh, painting and printmaking. And then, of course, working. I worked in central Auckland a lot when Auc- central Auckland had a lot of Pacific Island students there around Napier Street and Beresford Street. It's terribly upmarket now, but it wasn't like that then. And I had started a community center in Napier Street in the middle of, down by Freeman's Bay. And of course, then I realized how the kids and the students and the Pacific Island people, they took to woodcutting and printmaking like ducks take to a duck pond. Mm -hmm. It was so just part of the language they had. You didn't have to show them how to do anything or use the tools. It was just a, um, it was an ingrained knowledge. Soon as the hands, little hands, clasped on a carving chisel, that was it. They were away. So um, I sort of developed. I was very interested in developing uh, printmaking, and then it all happened in the seventies. There was a revival, a worldwide revival of print of the print arts, um, all over the world. And people started to look at other ethnic groups, like particularly Japan, mm. uh, Mexico, and all these things, rather than looking at the very Eurocentric thing that happened in Europe. Like, uh, and a lot, but a lot of our artists who had been to art schools like Elam or Island sometimes disappeared to Europe. I mean, I disappeared to Europe. But they disappeared to Europe and went to places like John. Draw, the late John Drawbridge went to Paris, and learned how to do things. And they bought stuff back. Yeah, and printmaking is very cooperative. What do it, you mean
4: cooperative?
1: Uh, it, well, you have to set up workshops. You know, you can't have. They it, it involves lots of machinery and lots of ink and lots of turpentine and lots of this and lots of that. And you can't actually sit... A lot of people can't set it up in their bedroom right. like they can an easel or on the back porch. You, um, you need to work cooperatively to share. And that happened... Lots of print workshops happened at that particular time.
0: Marilyn, you've been teaching... Or you taught art in Dunedin for 30 years.
1: Um, I taught art off and on. I went to Dunedin in the second time round... Because I got the Francis Hodgkins Fellowship, and by then I was um, almost forty, and I thought it's now or never, now <laughs> or never to be an artist. <laughs> so Dunedin had has always had a very good art community, and. Um, I was telling a woman I met on the plane it was easy to get in and out of them because the Air New Zealand fares were cheap. Oh,
0: yeah, isn't that great?
1: They, they were, you know, you could go back to Auckland for your mates' parties and they think, <laughs> oh, this is the this is the life. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, you it's not that cold. People have got a myth about Dunedin. It's not that cold. So I thought, well, it's now never so I dropped out and... and um, I must say, financially, uh, during that period, it was before the nineteen eighty seven market crash, and you know, artists uh, in recession, financial recession, artists the first thing to disappear off people's checkbooks. So uh, we uh, there were a lot of artists earning a living. Uh, Certainly not a big living, but enough to live on. And um, the Dunedin, the South Island people, have always been generous with their artists, so they bought work. Mm. So um, I decided then to see what, after the Francis Hodgkins Fellowship, I decided to uh, see how I went as an artist. So
0: Marilyn, you're a recipient for the Taaki Ihaka Awards. Yes. How did you feel when you first became aware I, that you were? I was a...
1: very felt. I I've got a bit of a hearing problem, mm. and I couldn't hear properly, and I didn't. I thought, I didn't quite understand, and then they rang me back. Yep. And I felt very honoured, because I mean, you know, you don't apply for these things; you're just given them. And I felt, then I felt, you know, overwhelmed that people had taken what you'd done with your life or, or taken the trouble to find out what you'd done. Kia ora,
0: Marilyn Webb Nongapuhi, who who is one of the recipients of the Tākingi Ihaka Award at the 2011 Nā Taungatoi Wakatoi. To listen to that kōrero or anything else from Te ahika, head to radio.nz.co.nz. Te ahika.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: The Waitangi Tribunal usually hears cases relating to Treaty of Waitangi breaches or grievances, but the groundbreaking Y262 flora and fauna claim was different. It was the first time an historical claim referred not to an alleged breach, but to wider law and international conventions. This goes to explain its complexity
0: and why it took 20 years to finish. Y262 was lodged in 1991 by six individuals representing their respective iwi, Ngāti Kuata, Ngāti Kuri, Ngāti Wai, Te Rarawa, Ngāti Porou, and Ngāti Kahunganu. The last remaining claimant was Ngāti Kuri
2: woman Sana Murray, who died a few weeks ago.
0: In this archival segment from 1988, she's talking at the Ethnobotany nga mahi maori o te a Tāne hui, Māori Environmental Practices, held at Te Marae, Christchurch.
2: To begin, Sana explains in Te Reo Māori that she is from Te Hiku o Teika,
0: the Tale of the Fish, and Te Riringua Wairua, the Far North, Te Hapua. She then acknowledges the tangata whenua of the Marae and her elders that have travelled with her to Te Marae. She explains that she travelled there in an aeroplane along with her elders. She then greets the Paepae Tapu, the kaumatua of the Marae, and acknowledges those that have gathered.
3: Tēnā hau. Hiku tika, Ki te ki te I can't get the tongue out of the I mai taku te nanahi, ka lere mai mātu, runga I tupuna. E alohana ki ngā kaupapa katoa, ko tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. Thank you, John Hippolyte. I feel re- reluctant to change into a total foreign language to me at the age of five. But I also had a Parkerhead grandfather who embraced me and taught me my few English words. So, although I'm not quite confident in expressing certain views, especially scientifically, at, as this is a scientific uh, meeting, but I do have a friend, a very dear friend, Dr Oliver Sutherland, of D S I R Auckland and through his encouragement for our people, he had asked that I had come down for my brother and myself and his wife and my daughter to come down and share with you what our elders had at the Harpur had wished to share with the children, the future children that will possibly gain knowledge and better their standards of living from knowing the past. So I will have to refer to a very prominent speaker last night, Dr. Chipene Leach. And I do believe what he says is very relevant today about the spiritual side we do accept the spiritual side of life has always been here if it wasn't for that spiritual strength our ancestors probably wouldn't have had the courage to come over this wide expanse of the Pacific Ocean they had science then science of the heavenly bodies. <coughs> so, one of those canoes had landed at the tip of the north. And that canoe, today, there is a stone to commemorate the landing place of that canoe, Kurahopo. It is in the area of the north cape. It stayed there for a while and then came down, further down at Tupuna, Kohurihanga as his canoe was turning round the North Cape, Kakite Tupuna. Ko Murichen, Ko Muriotechen. He explained, this is the end of the land. But today we say the top of the land, the or the tail of the fish. So therefore, a tupuna also had migrated from those areas. Under the mountain, one of our tūpunas well-known is Kahungungu. He was born below our mountains at the Hikotika. It is true, we do believe that there is healing in the spiritual side not having any doctors in the very isolated area where I come from, Tehapu, about 75 to 90 miles away by horse. (laughs) So, So I do have great faith in the spiritual side of life. To give birth is also to give life. And therefore, we had believed that both the spiritual and the physical side of life. <coughs> to, to pass on this knowledge of all the medicine this doctor was talking about yesterday, we had heard them too as children. And one of my fears is the only medicine that I was familiar with, with although I can't speak too much about it, it's called the Home. It is used mainly for the ailments of coughs and, uh, and other things that uh, our people had taught us uh, just pour a bit of hot water over it if it's too bitter at first it doesn't leave a sweet taste in your mouth because it is has curative uh, it is uh, best for you that you forget about the bitter side because it's going to be curing your cold so I fear that perhaps I should express express that uh, my fear is that there had been from the time that that I had realized that there were other issues other than getting up, hearing my father saying uh, prayers, having kai and going to school and all of that. I hadn't realized that uh, years later there will be a total change of life in my village. We will be told that this portion of land will be best used for other purposes, such as the monoculture of planting pinus radiata, trees around our coast, and of course farming was the first one for schemes, for development schemes. It was quite unreal to expect that trees could replace the natural trees of our country. But they created acts called incorporations. Through this incorporation, They alienated the rights of the Tangata Fenua. You became a paper shareholder on paper, so it was easier for the corporation to manipulate your shares into voting whether we should have trees or let the land remain in its natural state. So I found that I was being manipulated by government bodies that haven't even bothered to come up to the tip of the north to see what was really happening up in our area and all these projects came up. First they take the land for the trees and then we find we can't even go down and fish and camp overnight because it'll be a fire hazard and all these laws and notices kept coming up don't camp here. No fires. No, oh, no everything. Even no dogs. So uh, now there is a total change again. This time, the lands that had been in the control of the crown—I I know you're all familiar with this—developed through the Lands and Survey in Maori affairs. Now it has changed hands to a conservationist. Ministry. I know there are conservationists here today, but I say that half of the country is perhaps in the control of this new ministry now. It had been all along. And part of the policy of the Crown or the Lands and Survey at, ta- at that time was to lease out to people that could reap benefit from certain areas of these reserves, therefore you see launching pads for helicopters, boats and everything around to Lake An around our beautiful bushes and uh, and natural walkways were set up, but I'm not against that what I'm fearing is that to have the word conservationist i not so sure whether this body should be the sole controller of the rest of our lands. So I do share very deeply those ancestral areas, so I ask the conservationists, we would like to share with you to look after our land, even if it's the, the Tikoka, the Tikauka, We'd like to share that responsibility with you because we cannot get away from it, which is not our colour. I do have blue-eyed Mokapunas as well. So we will share what is in the future <clears throat> and I hope to leave this area feeling much better for expressing a few of my grievances. <laughs> It is a chant like a bird skimming over the ocean of Murimoto, that area I'm talking about, on its way to the leaping place of the ancestors. That's just a brief meaning of this chant I'm going to sing. <laughs> I knew that it
4: should be your name. It did, but I
2: Tēnā koe e te whaia Sāna Māori tērā i te tau ko tahimano iwarau 88 in 1988 from the ethno-bosani hui nā mahi Māori o te wānuia tāne that featured in He Reringa Kōrero. She died just a few weeks ago.
0: Ano nei te mihi ki tōna ke whānau o Ngāti Kuri, terarawā.
2: Seth Harpu grew up in Whanganui and like many artists that were featured on Teahika music was definitely a
0: whanau affair. This year he's been pretty busy with the launch of his album and performing during this year's Rugby World Cup 2011. I managed to track him down between
5: gigs. So I was um, born in Whanganui and um, grew up there and lived there until I was 15 and then moved to Rotorua and um, my iwi is Ngāti Would
0: you say that has has Maori culture uh, been a part of your upbringing or not a part of your upbringing?
5: Um, in some ways it has, but I think um, my my mum and dad were kind of we didn't really grow up kind of with any any sort of fundamental Maori teachings. But um, I suppose as far as music goes, there was lots of that around the house and plenty of guitar playing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Did you visit the marae? Or yeah,
5: yeah, from time to time, and it was usually. Which is sad to say at, at funerals and stuff. Mm. Um but even then we would we would sing and, and perform with, with other people. So, um yeah, my Mori background is quite limited, but I think um, you know, being obviously Moldy myself it, it does come through in other, other areas like music.
0: Can I ask how old you are now?
5: Yeah, I'm twenty four. Twenty four.
0: And how long have you been doing the the music thing for?
5: Oh, ever since I was a kid, eh. Um because mum and dad were both musos and they had their own covers band and they used to practice a lot around the house and I remember having to try and fall asleep to in you know, a lot of old school music because they were covered music from the 70s and 60s. So um, ever since I was a baby, music was around the house. So yeah. So mum and wild. dad were in a band. Yeah. <laughs> Chair. Yeah, yeah, they were cool. Like they would um, kind of put us all into a, a Holden use and we would go <laughs> to places around Wanganui like um, Martin and. Um, Masterton and places like that just to um for them to perform, so it was it was cool. it was on the road as a baby so it would 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 it be
0: mum Dad and a few of the other well just the two no. yeah
5: yeah i've got an older sister and a younger brother, and um when we were old enough, we were kind of were delegated to to sing at most events um and we would do like harmonies and sing silly little songs like um you are my sunshine <laughs> 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 but it was good. It was good foundations to kind of, um, you know, practice three part harmonies with, with the siblings.
0: How old do you recall that happening? How old were you?
5: I think I was about five or six when. Gosh. we were kind of first put in front of an audience, and I was I hated it too because I was quite a reserved kid, and you know, <laughs> dad was a little bit not forceful, but he really he liked to encourage us to perform. So, um, yeah. So, Dad was
0: kind of like Joseph Jackson, and <laughs> yeah, you were kind of like the Michael. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
5: all the um, horrible abuse in that, but um, no, certainly.
0: <laughs> but he did push you in the right direction, obviously, because look at you now.
5: Yeah, yeah, I, I attribute a lot of you know where I am today through my from my parents, so um, definitely a big help.
0: So, you're twenty-four. When did it become semi-professional for you?
5: Um, when I I uploaded some songs on MySpace um, back in two thousand and six. And I kind of just sent um, the link to a few people in the industry. Like one of the guys was from Universal Music here, and another was from Sony. And um, I was living in Australia at the time, and I moved back home in 2007 and met a guy called Matt Rise in ox And I gave him some demos, and he took them to Sony, and it pretty much happened quite quickly from that point.
0: So you were, what, 19 at the time?
5: Yeah, around about 19, yeah.
0: Now, in terms of your writing, have you always written songs? <laughs> Are you a poet? Uh, um, Seth? Uh, no,
5: I wish I, I would like to be. Okay, me. No, you... Awesome part, but I think um, I just like to kind of get my feelings out through writing, and I started as early as eight, and I wrote a song to. It's a little bit embarrassing, a Kenny G song called "Going Home." Then I used that as the, the kind of theme to base my lyrics around. Um,
0: I was going to say, what's a young boy like you listening to Kenny G4? <laughs> Did you read Dad's record
5: yeah, stash or well, something? Well, it was the only thing I could find that was an instrumental track, eh? Oh,
0: okay. <laughs>
5: but, um, yeah, aside from that, I was probably listening to, like, Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. <laughs> oh, yeah, so you were
0: a bit of a. Um, well, yeah, what are your music tastes?
5: Uh, I, I'm hugely influenced by a lot of old school, um, and that's mainly because that was what I was kind of. Um, what I heard as a kid, so that was the early influence.
0: Now speaking of music, let's talk about your album, Seth Harpu. It's the name of your album, self-titled.
5: Yeah, we, I couldn't think of um, a cool enough name, eh? so I was like, I'll just go with my name, Seth Harpu's fine. <laughs> just, just,
0: just stick that And right then the record
5: company wouldn't let me call it, you know, I'm a gangster and you know it. So I said, <laughs> oh yeah, sweet, sweet ass, Seth Harpu's, Seth Harpu's fine.
0: And then I picked out a few of my favourites. Um, It was keeping count. I love that song and uh, "Fingertips" because you you use quite a bit of the um the, the, the guitar strum in those two tracks.
5: Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I love I love those tracks because they um, I think keeping count was kind of during a period that I was waiting for um, the record deal to kind of happen, and in a way, you know, it's kind of written as a love song, but I think. The underlying message is to kind of learn to be patient in life, and good things do take time. And moving mountains, sorry, fingertips was originally called moving mountains. Um, it's just about kind of love, a chall- a challenging sort of love where you're in a predicament where someone that you're you're trying to love is kind of battling with, you know, some really deep personal thing, and it's hard to um, kind of love them because they tend to act neg- negatively. So. Yeah, it's a little bit, a little bit, um, yeah, deep.
0: So, Seth, um, was, was Bones the song that kind of did the rounds on
5: YouTube? Um, yeah, I think, yeah, Bones was the first yeah. um, video and single released. So that would have been, I suppose, the first impression that people had of my music, both visually and sonically.
0: And the thing that I really like about your music is because the videos are quite... Uh, are quite different and i mean is that a reflection of the record company kind of investing money into you with the with the nice videos and <laughs> and the the, the scenery the scenery especially in bones and it opens with that young boy lip-syncing your song yeah. and you come along and then are
5: you on a cliff yes yeah we yeah. filmed that in australia but um i think that first video we i um how did that come about we had pitched to a few different directors and this one in particular we liked because it kind of had a bit of a light-hearted storyline to it and I think the song is kind of in contrast to that if you kind of read the lyrics and really look into it Um, so we liked that contrast and kind of juxtaposed the song's lyrics and made it a bit more fun and yeah I, I really enjoyed that clip.
2: Kia ora, Seth Harpu Nornatipuro and we'll end the show with an acoustic version of his song Keeping Count.
0: Anita Amehana Dearie with this week's Fakatoki.
5: Uh, ma um and again my Fakado my around this Fakotoki is that a critical mass of people um, is required to try and realize a vision for the multitudes. Uh, I te taho papa, ko Ngāti Kauwhata, uh, ko Ngāti Raukawa Merangitane uh, uh, o ku iwi, te koka, ko Ngāti Porau, ko Rongo Whakata, ko Ngai Tau o uh, ku iwi, uh, ko Meihana Jerry tōku ingoa.
0: Kia ora mai Hana, who'll be back with us next week to talk about Napurapura, a new sports complex being built at te whare wānanga in ōtaki. And I'm with Dr
2: Ngāpāre Hopa, the first Māori woman to gain a doctorate from Oxford University. He mihi ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Atui tēra, ki ngā kai rā wiki wiki mihini, mihi ngā mihi. Hoki mai he te rātapu. Mā te whanua
0: ti ki a katoa. māori ora! Maure.
4: Patience be my friend Please do not pretend That I did not condescend That I have not persisted Time is to the fore Followed you up and out my door and I've been holding score. In your absence, I grow fonder. I've been keeping count, counting on promises to keep me away, counting the days. City and complete every night is bittersweet sweet apathy replaces interest. I curse inside.